Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word leave us a review, or share our episodes on social media. We always love to hear from you. Just a quick note for this episode. Because we had so much to say about Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet, we've decided to split this episode into two parts. This is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, it's probably a good idea to go back an episode and listen to that one first. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I, I, I just wondered, because I, I sort of touched on this myself, like how you felt watching older Doctor Who episodes when you were when you were children, in in a sense of how you were responding to um because I think a lot of children sort of I don't think it's unusual for children to be sort of anti like anything old or anything black and white. Um and I I, I mean my my favourite doctor was Peter Davison, uh, Peter Davison and Tom Baker. That's my absolute favorite era, and my uncles as well. Funnily enough, so so I had most of them. I had I had all of them, well, a lot of them on VHS, whereas I didn't have so many of the um, sort of pre Pertwee um, uh, doctors, um, or indeed of the later ones of of, of sort of Colin Baker and, and Sylvester McCoy. I didn't have so many of those episodes. So really, my knowledge of Doctor Who and my appreciation of Doctor Who as a child really came from from those two two doctors um d- d- how how are you feeling around them and and was that i don't know that's the question <laughs> can, can i yeah go for it Ethan. i'll go first and then i'd really like to hear from you because your work on your phd is on doctor who and so it's absolutely fascinating that's right so for me um again i was i <sighs> I was a curious child because I never, but I was never uh, dissuaded by anything old. Uh, I mean, it's not for nothing that a, uh, an ex-partner once joked to me. I've never met someone who could be nine, nineteen, and ninety all in the space of five minutes, <laughs> which is was which was one of the most flattering things I've ever received. Uh, the point is, the point is, is that I very much enjoyed classic Who when I was younger. Uh, I found, especially Tom Baker, I found Baker's sort of sense of almost wide-eyed, lugubrious, sort of tripping through life to be very, very um, endearing, I suppose. And I think it perhaps resonated with me on a level that my young self didn't recognise in terms of feeling comforted by this deeply eccentric figure uh, just being himself and being, um, I I suppose... one might say it reflects certain elements of autism. We can get onto that in a second in relation to that excellent article you mentioned, David. Um, but yes, because um, obviously the parents had seen it all on release. The, the, my parents are my parents are old enough to have watched Pertwee and uh, Baker and Davison when they were new. 
Uh, and so they, I think they were a bit more dismissive of it, but I, they, they, they were, to their credit, they indulged my, my habit. And so I had quite a collection when I eventually had to give it away uh, to, to a Doctor Who society at my local school. Uh, but I had All the Key to Time, um, Tomb of the Cybermen, The Five Doctors. And, and so, but of course, they were very hard to find when I was a kid because you didn't have the internet as much. You had it, but you didn't have the access to online copies of um, serials. So you had to make do with what you could find uh, in HMV with your pocket money. Uh, and so that's how I sort of developed my collection. So, yeah, for me, I never bothered. I, I liked the slowness. I liked the, the the staging. I liked the... I think I quite liked the the, the special effects, which were not great, uh, to say the least, because often Doctor Who was working on a shoestring budget. Um, so, I th- yeah, for me, it was actually quite comforting in, in, a, in a weird, weird way. Um, yeah, I think that's my response. What about you, Harry? Because your work, obviously is very much on Who. And I'm interested to know with you, how did your Who interest start, I suppose? Yes, well, um, I, I'm, I'm similar to you in that when I was a kid, I was actually, um, in answer to Lillian's question, um, I, I was actually very, I, I just immersed myself in classic Doctor Who. As, upon watching the new series, I, I started with Doomsday, which is perhaps a bit of an odd first episode. But um, prior to that, I knew a bit of Doctor Who I'd seen advertisements for Doctor Who magazine. Uh, I'd seen the covers on of the DVDs with Eccleston and then watched Doomsday and then uh, went and then sort of, because I'd grown up prior on more on a diet of uh, a classic uh, BBC British comedies. So I, I also love stuff like the Jasper Carrot and Robert Powell, the detectives, uh, Only Fools and Horses. Um, and so I I I was I didn't feel uh, totally alienated by classic Doctor Who, and I think what speaks to it to me in terms of my autistic experience with it is I love the density of it. I love how much there is. I, I remember reading one time that somebody said the longevity of Doctor Who isn't really the the reason for its appeal. Its longevity is a result of its appeal. But I would disagree with that. I actually love the fact that there is so much of it. So from an early age of nine or ten. I was like, I love the fact that in the Cyberman comic strip Black Legacy by the Alan Moore, they mention the Deathsmiths of Goth, which Russell T. Davis mentions in the Christopher Eccleston annual as being a part of the Time War. So I, I just love that aspect of it uh, in terms of just how much there is to under, understand. I get regularly, I'm uh, w- with my friends. They're just, they can't believe that I can name all the Space Marine supporting characters from Death to the Daleks. They're like, they are the most boring characters ever. How can you? And like, but I can't help but know that that one's called Jill Tarrant and they're down to their last packet of sulfogen tablets, Richard. And that one's called Commander Stewart. And that one's Galloway. And that's funny because Galloway is a name that's used in a later Dalek story called Resurrection. It's that kind of thing. It's why actually coming to this has been quite interesting because I think for me, relating autism to Doctor Who has always been more of a contextual thing than in terms of the content. It's coming to do this podcast that it's made me go, oh, I can definitely see why, you know, the kind of the Cybermen could have an autistic reading. I think the nice thing was it, it, it didn't make me go, oh gosh, I, I, I've, that's put me off them. If anything, I'd go, no, it's a valid reading. Is I suppose it's more that in terms of autism in Doctor Who, it's never been 
very center. I know in, um, uh, like uh, in some of the expanded media, there's a there's an audio with the Sixth Doctor by a writer called Nev Fountain, uh, which is the curious incident of the Doctor in the nighttime, which is obviously a play on the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime book, uh, which I'd read a few years earlier. Uh, there was an episode called Night Terrors, which, and I, I've known some people go, oh, that boy George, that boy George is probably autistic. But I've, I suppose I, I, it's, it's been more contextual for me. It's, kind of, it's more like the fact that I've got 11 10th Planet Cybermen action figures when really you only need one, but, like, but I need 11. And people would be like, but there aren't even 11 in the story. There's probably only six or seven. I'm like, I know, but I need them. I need eleven. <laughs> I need them all. Um, so much. Yeah. I, I mean, this is this is something that I I think about a lot, um, and and is part of the reason why I sort I sort of I almost flinch sometimes when people mention Doctor Who to me or or talk about Doctor Who and, and a certain number of other because I was so obsession doesn't quite cover it, um, but and I had to have. It was almost like I was obsessed with collecting, sorry, I was collecting obsessions. It was like I couldn't, I, and I had to know everything. Um, such levels of hyperfixation that I had. I would watch episodes of Doctor Who with a notebook and I would write down every single name that was mentioned because I knew that I wouldn't necessarily be able to have it. And also you have to remember, of course, that when I was watching Doctor Who, it wasn't all available. So even like the episodes that were being broadcast, if I'd missed one because we were at my nan's or whatever, then I'd miss the episode and wouldn't be able to see it. But I remember like the end, the second episode, the end of the world having one, I was on holiday and just being, even though it was only the second one, I was so upset because I'd, I'd missed it. And I it felt like I was never going to be able to watch it. Um, and I just, I remember when the Doctor Who figures started and I was <laughs> needed all of them all of them, and I needed the Battles in Time cards, and I needed every issue of the Doctor Who magazine, not Doctor Who magazine, the, um, what's the children's one? Doctor Who Adventures. Is that what it's called? Yeah, anyway, those. Um, And then it's like, there's a lot of it, right? And that's costing, that costs a lot of money. (laughs) Um, And I just... I'd, it was like the levels of distress that I'd had. I didn't have these things. And then I really got into autographs and I really wanted to have all of the doctors autographs. And I had a lot of them and I've met a number of the doctors and, and that was nice. But like, I think it got to a point where it felt like there was just too much to know. And it was really like, I remember, I remember going into my room once and I just had a complete breakdown. And I started tearing up all of my Doctor Who posters and throwing out. I got rid of all my VHSs, all thrown out. I got rid of all my Doctor Who figures. I got rid of everything because I just could not have it anymore because it just became so overwhelming. And this was the same for Harry Potter. It was the same for Lord of the Rings. It was the same for Disney. Like all of these things just became too much and I couldn't separate myself from it. So it's really, I'm really pleased actually that we've been able to sort of talk about this because it's so interesting hearing you talking about it in a positive way and I love hearing people talking about it in a positive way um I talked to um uh, my friend Matthew Sweet about this recently he's a massive Doctor Who fan um and he was we were talking about this and he says like people love that people love the fact that they're 
there's so much to know and to learn it on. I'm like, there are other things for me to use my headspace for. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, David. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's just really interesting to hear you say that, Lillian, because, uh, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of research into, like, fandoms and things like that and, and how fandoms sort of, especially science fiction fandom and also fant fandoms with fantasy and stuff, these kind of big worlds that autistic people tend to connect with and have these large audiences. And it's been interesting. I, I've always thought in terms of, like, it being, being a really positive space, like fandom, fandom being a really positive space, which it is and can continue to be because it can... It can encourage, um, you know, social, social, there's a sort of different social aspect within a fandom. You can share bits of knowledge like you all will, are doing today, you know, share bits of intimate detail and that becomes useful currency in an exchange, in a social exchange, which you don't necessarily get outside of the context of kind of sci-fi and fantasy fandom. So there's a usefulness there of, of helping to create autistic community and autistic togetherness, um, and then there's the great depth of it. But listening to you, it makes me think, you know, if, when you think of this in like a kind of, in a, with a capitalist way, you know, in to what extent are these kinds of major programs like Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever, like exploiting like autistic or, fans? Autistic hyperfixation, of course they exactly. are. Exactly. And I, and I We're going, all right, we'll do a whole range of toys. Sorry. Yeah, we do a whole range of toys. We'll have all of this. We'll do Torchwood. We'll do spin-offs, and and we've got this these people who have to who are utterly obsessed as the, to use the term. It's, it's too much. It really is. It's, and like extended universes is and like like um. It's why I I always liked the Star Wars as well. And I just like it's it's like there has to be a limit to what you can do. Um. And I remember the same thing. I mean, the, I, I I mean, I detached myself from Harry Potter long before J.K. Rowling came out as what she is <laughs> she, she, she must not be named um but um when they she started doing like pottermore stuff and it was suddenly like how much do i need to memorize if i'm going to be able to get 100 100 percent in every quiz that i was going to because i would do you know i mean quizzing is another discussion we can have that one that's going to have to happen on this podcast at some point um but it's it's like this this kind of like you have to know everything and sometimes the world is really really overwhelming when you just yeah. can't um, yeah, yeah. really interesting i used to quite like it when you couldn't have access to everything when you couldn't get access to every doctor who episode like that because it felt there was almost an exploratory aspect. I always feel this way about cinema as well and 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 literature and e everything really is that it used to be so much more exciting to have to hunt things down and things would be elusive. Um, and now it's not the case. I mean, obviously there's missing episodes, right? But then there's an anxiety there as well because there's a lack of completionism. It's like, well, what's the point in doing it all if we're, if we're missing an episode? Um, and it... Ethan, sorry, you, did you have something to say? Oh, Harry, um, I saw you with your hand on us, and I well, was yeah, talking it was just, right it over was, your hand. So no, no because, the, no, because the thing is, is that you've brought up something which is very, very important and has not been discussed on the podcast before, which is the fact that sometimes the upset it is obsessive. The obsessive desire to know everything can be crushing. It can be, I'll be honest, I've certainly felt sometimes like it's almost a vice on my brain that it, it refuses to stop. And some, especially who can actually do that quite badly for me in terms of um, the, the classic era. 
But also, I was reminded of a con- something that was... I-, I read an article recently on a later serial called Paradise Towers, which is... Um, there's a very, very good article by an individual. I'll just get their name up now. Uh, and they were talking about the, 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 the conception of fandom and the conception of fandom as dictating taste. What was it? And it was a, it was a line which I hadn't thought about, but it makes perfect, perfect sense, which is this. Uh, so this is from the uh, Hereditor Empress... Uh, the editor in press, sorry, and this is Elizabeth Sandifer. Uh, this is her notes on Paradise Towers from about 10 years ago. The fact is largely responsible, uh, this fact is largely responsible for the maddening, maddening uh, sociopathy of mainstream science fiction fandom. It's a self-selecting group of reasonably affluent people focused on capitalist production. They are myopic by design. And while that's a particularly, uh, perhaps a particularly harsh way to phrase it, she captures, I think, the fact that a lot of the fandom process is quite capitalistic. And also, she says, I think quite notably, it's a privilege of um, affluent labor. It's a privilege of affluence, really. You have the expendable money to go out and buy, um, in my case, the entire Key to Time series on, on DVD when it came out because I wanted that so badly. I had got that as a Christmas present. Or all of the Doctor Who mag- uh, man- um, magazines or the Doctor Who uh, what was it? The Doctor Who Annuals, which came out every single year. So there is, there is, I think, there's a danger sometimes with with uh, with fandom where it becomes a, just a relentless consumption, and it's just feeding. In some respects, I can un- entirely understand what Lily means because it's not only just about the pleasure of like finding something new to 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 move into new ways of finding something. It's also about restriction. It's about not feeding that very particular beast that will suck up all of your knowledge, all of your money, all of your time, and kind of turn you, and I think for some fans, kind of turn you into a bit of a shell, really. You turn into a shell solely obsessed. And that is something I'd also like to bring up in relation to how Doctor Who in the 80s became very fandom obsessed because of the presence of someone like Ian Levine. Now, this is not, an, this is, I would like to say, this isn't me attacking Levine in any way. It's more highlighting the fact that as John Nathan Turner brings Levine onto the show to advise on continuity, the show gradually becomes more and more fandom-based, it becomes more hermetic, and it becomes more obsessed with in-references. A big one for this is Attack of the Cybermen, which is entirely based around moments of the Tenth Planet in relation to Mondas, but also to Tomb of the Cybermen, which was a serial at that point that was not in the archives. It was completely missing. So watching that on release was a little bit like what it was watching with your hand tied behind your back. Um, and I think that's something very important as well, is how fandom, and I think especially in some respects with autistic fandom, can be quite insular and quite uh, well, I, hermetic. I, I sort of felt a little bit like that with the with with the direction Stephen Moffat took the modern who, because I, I started getting a bit turned off by towards the end of the Matt Smith era, although I have watched all modern who, but towards the end of the Matt Smith era, I started really losing the plot and losing the thread of what was going on because there was so many interweaving things of happening. And, you know, it, it comes on every week, but I don't always have time to watch it. So I have to catch up. And it's just like, and so I was sort of, sort of getting lost at that point. Anyway, sorry, Harry, I, want, I wanted you to come in on this. Uh, well, I think, I think, Lillian is is right in um, you know it, the sort of it can be like an an overload. It can be akin to a sensory overload. It's it's, it's something as stepping into kind of being, I suppose, a, a writer and wanting to break into television and and audio drama. It's you do then have this other thing of 
the uh, the imposter syndrome, and but also wanting to you know uh, to have ownership of it. Uh, it's it's got to be something that you've got to be able to cut off from you know to 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 not constantly have that tap on um and i think it's not something i would regret uh because it's it's been lovely to to you know to have a program like that to you know um you know to make me want to you know become a writer and get into television production but i think it's important to be able to sever yourself from that when you need to, uh, because it it just can be quite. It's become it can become a bit of a, a monolith, really. It should it's it should uh, a good hopefully a good way is looking at that. It should always be about what it can do for you rather than what you can do for it. Uh, hopefully that's that's a, a nice sort of measured sort of thing i think it's it's good to rec to just to 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 totally see that kind of that side where you you it can just be so much uh and um i've i think i've had that with a lot of other sort of franchises and then there are others that i i'm sort of like i'm so glad i uh, the the marvel cinematic universe i'm glad i never even became remotely a fan of those the only ones i like are the guardians of the galaxy films and then the rest i'm like so when you have all these sort of terrible kind of like you know it, intense discussions about um oh surely that character shouldn't have been able to sap to that quantum i'm like who <laughs> i mean if we want to talk about it as like the evils of capitalism the mcu kind of like is basically the uh, i mean watching like I mean, as a film critic, I kind of have to keep on top of them, and I don't want to watch these dreadful films because um, I cannot be bothered. But if I want to write about them or talk about them, you, or even vaguely understand what the latest one is doing, you have to have seen all of them and keep on top of those levels of knowledge. So, you know, but it's the same kind of practice. And it, it, I think it's really interesting that it's like, tapping into what is really and the relationship between autism and neurodivergence and fandom is is something that's really important i'm glad that we're talking about it because it's not something that i'd necessarily really thought about in the past but now i think about it um you know i always say that i never actually had any friends when i was when i was younger there are people i would interact with but i didn't see them as my friends these are just people who i could talk to about doctor who and stuff <laughs> and it's like Maybe, maybe it's like, you know, having real friendships and real meaningful relationships with other human beings is what's kind of made me go, I don't want to do that anymore. I think you can have that. Of course I do. Um, and I think it's, it's what's really interesting to me is that we can talk about something like the 10th planet in the context of autism. It's so much more interesting to me than talking about all the production details of this episode. Sorry, guys, I know you're interested. No, there's a way, well, I as think... soon as you're like talking about script editors and stuff, I am switching off. <laughs> no, there is some, but there's something in that, though, in the collection of facts. I think it's... An, when I was talking about things being hermetic, that is part of it. It becomes, I think, especially when we're talking about knowing who the script editor was, knowing who the director was... Derek Martin is. Uh, knowing who... <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help it because, unfortunately, the director of this also directed maybe my favourite serial, which is Spearhead from Space. 
which is one of the best one of the best. I love that you're proving my point so well. <laughs> yeah, but no, but yeah, oh no, I am completely proving your point. But that's also what I'm trying to say is that I'm so I'd like to think I'm self aware enough to acknowledge. No, you are. That... I, I, I'm not criticizing. It's not. A, I'm not saying this as a criticism. I'm just talking about it in relation to how, for me, a lot of this was actually causing a lot of isolation. Um, which, which you know, maybe maybe that's. Maybe that's the distinction between if there is a is it, if there is a gendered distinction here. Perhaps perhaps that's that's playing into it. That I think that's, that that's what I was wondering. Actually, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to like make too many sort of sweeping statements about that. But I think that no. But I I, I, I can understand. There's there's obviously going to be a bigger community of autistic men who are obsessed with these things than there is of autistic women necessarily or at least there is in my in my experience i'm sure that there are if i'd been more online as a teenager then maybe i'd have found them but i didn't really know what the internet was so <laughs> no and i think that's no but i think you bring up a really important thing which i think as well is this and i do have to i do have to briefly relate things to gendered uh, to gendered matters because it's an important one to talk about which is that when people um I'm going to use a little bit of recent context. For those who've not seen it, Christine McGuinness recently released a documentary about women with autism. Uh, if you've not seen it, I highly recommend it. It's very, very, very interesting. And she is really, she's she's absolutely fascinating and makes a fantastic documentary. The point is, they have a brief discussion with somebody talking about diagnosing women with autism. And it's talking about what are the various male, what are the things that they look for? And in guys, it's these facts figures um here are all these pictures of telegraph poles for example and i kind of feel that me knowing that the director of this is derek martinus and then being able to tell you at least three or four of the other serials he directed falls into that sort of extremely not sort of very male or male detail orientated hoovian obsession and that can be very isolating, I think. And I think that the way that the Doc Two fandom works, probably, if I'm honest, has shut out and has and has informed our what we what uh, sort of concepts of what autism is, right? And has 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 turned it into this very male focused condition that where we have all of these things saying, you know, there's twice as many men are, are diagnosed as you know males are diagnosed as females and has and has put us into this weird cul-de-sac where like autistic women are just not being recognized it's this there's also this weird thing where like uh, uh women who are fans of the show and actually you know write will write articles or pieces on shirley coward who is the vision mixer on the regeneration and Al alexandra uh tynan they they can write about them extensively and know the minutiae of how they did these effects, and also even look at their other work. But because they're women, they're, they're fan, other fans have to come and interrogate them for. Well, do you genuinely know or feel that? And it's like that's something that men don't. Yeah. This, have this to... is something I find constantly is that I, I used to find that people would sort of say, "Well, what does she know?" <laughs> and interrogate me on these things, and it's like, and I still get that, and it's like, okay, why? Well, all right, I know that I'm not a real fan, right? If I don't know what this what this thing was, but I, and I suppose that's the thing. That's maybe that's part of it, and maybe my issue with these like with fandom is that it's like this sense of what constitutes a fan, and it's like it's not about what you get out of it. It's not about how an emotional connection 
or a sort of representational connection necessarily. It's about how many facts you have managed to cram into your brain. And I just can't engage with that. I need to engage with what is going on within Doctor Who. And actually, I think that's really fascinating. And what I love about it is that, you know, it's a show where, I mean, I was growing up watching Rose Tyler and Martha Jones and... John and Oval and um, fucking Amy Pond. Sorry, language. Amy Pond. Amy Pond is an entire subject of herself. Well, but... as, as a character who I really strongly connected with in a way that I hadn't really been able to otherwise. And I think that those characters were were really important to me. But I wasn't, I didn't care about like the details of them anymore i stopped trying to engage with that because it wasn't giving me any pleasure but i love the fact that it brings pleasure to my huvian brothers (laughs) enjoy Um, there is one more i think we're getting near to the end of time there's there's two things i'd like to talk about before you end on fandom and one very briefly is we've been talking about the uh, women in particular Let's not forget how much people, there were a number of fans who were in, who were quite vociferous about the fact that they didn't think uh, Jodie Whittaker could play the Doctor because she was a woman. And they felt that that violated some unspoken law of Huviana. Which is ridiculous because who can just do whatever it wants? It's like, <laughs> yeah, anyway, carry on. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely that. And I think that's a really, I think that's something which. Yeah. Well, it's huge for me. I mean, I've had my. I'm not. I'm, I'm not kidding. I've got an. I've got a piercing on my ear right here that I got because Jodie Whittaker's doctor had one. And she's obviously a lesbian icon, and we love her. Um, but I think that I think you're right, Ethan. That it's. I found that so. I found that whole debate really upsetting and really toxic because, for me, that was what I'd always wanted. I'd always been craving, you know, and the ideas that like the ideas of sort of fixed um, ideas of gender that people try to sort of enforce on this planet would extend to Gallifrey are completely absurd. I mean, read Ursula K. Le Guin on this topic, (laughs) for for God's sake. Um, And it's like, no, we can use Doctor Who to sort of free itself from that. What really let Jodie Whittaker down was Chris Chibnall. (laughs) Oh yeah, no. no, That's a whole different thing, but I feel like I've still loved these last few series, even though they've been really, really bad, is that that Jodie Whittaker is in them, and that in itself is something... She's been wonderful, yeah. Special. And I think think that's a really important part as well, is the fact of female representation, queer representation as well, because increasingly they've... Doctor Doctor Who increasingly has done that, and I think that's a really positive thing. And people of colour as well. We've had Bill Potts. We've had, is it Yasmin? Of the, yeah, yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. And that, from what we were talking about earlier in relation to Doctor Who, classic Who, with Earl Cameron only appearing for two episodes and then obviously dying in a in a in a in a shuttle crash. That's that's a that is a really positive development i think in 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 the world well doctor doctor who's representational power in tv i mean um, sci-fi in general i mean star trek is obviously the most famous example is is so important in that respect maybe yeah we need someone putting in autistic characters people talking about being autistic you know i i think that that's that's maybe the next step is is more sort of representations of of neurodivergence and disability in doctor who 
please, Mr. Davis, I'm sure you can do that because you care more than the last two. We must, yeah, we must give thanks to Russell T. Davis, who, um, who's in all aspects of, of life, we must give yeah. thanks to Russell T. Davis. <laughs> yeah, yeah Russell, Russell T. Davis is a fantastic writer and uh, uh, was a brilliant showrunner and is very much, I think, responsible for the great bedrock of success, which who lands on today uh, in ways that I would be extremely boring. I would bore the, the ears off everybody by talking about those ways. But the thing I want to get onto finally, it is more fan-related, and it's something uh, in relation to Harry, which is Harry's, um, not just Harry's thesis, but more, more personally, Harry's recent work with Big Finish, which obviously is... Um, for those of you who don't know, Big Finish was a company set up after the end of the classic Who It era to provide audio stories for various Doctors. Uh, it was largely how Paul McGann's Eighth Doctor uh, created his universe. It expanded, and then it proceeded to expand the universes of a number of different uh, Doctors, most notably Colin Baker, who was very hard done by by the system, but I will really refrained from talking about that because it's so boring but the, the point is i'd like to know from you harry what how did a how did you get into how did you come about writing for um for doctor who and when the story was out when you um when you heard it as read by the great nicholas briggs was there a sort of a sense of pride in knowing that you had contributed to this well this this fandom this sort of galaxy of uh, of passion, shall we say? Hmm. Well, uh, Big Finish Productions, I is one of my sort of favourite bits of Doctor Who. Uh, I um, it, it was actually the first one I listened to of their work was the uh, a, a story with Peter Davison uh, and the Daleks, and it was given to me my to my parents uh, when on the day they announced that my mum was going to have a baby. So it was like, so that was like. I was looking at the cover of this with the dark going, wow, this is great. And they said, by the way, I went, what? Uh, and, and this was before they even came back with the scan and we found out it was twins. So that was like uh, immense. And I'd been, uh, they, they, Big Finish started um, a lovely opportunity in memory of a colleague called Paul Sprague, who had sadly passed away due to heart complications and, um, what I can do is that maybe after the podcast, I can email. There's, a, I think, there's a just giving page to the British Heart Foundation, um, in set up in memory of Paul Sprague, where people can donate. Um, so I'll I'll remember to send that afterwards. Um, and they did an opportunity where you can submit a Doctor Who short story of five thousand words, and it will be made into an audio book. And I'd been I'd been setting in an idea for the first two years of the opportunity. I got lovely feedback for, on the first year from the producer of the short trips then, which was Ian Atkins. Um, and you could sort of, I, I, submitting the first two stories, I knew they weren't going to work because they didn't really work as short stories. And that's kind of what they have to be first and foremost. More than oh, a Doctor Who adventure, it's got to be a short story. So it's got to work within that word count. It's got to, you know, uh, use... Um, you know, there's got to be like a, a story that can work within that framework. Uh, eventually, by the third year, I was hit upon an idea of, it was originally going to feature Paul McGann's Doctor, and it was going to be about like how he had the TARDIS painted 
like by a, a worker, like a layman, he'd like get it serviced and someone would paint it a fresh coat of paint. And then he would go into the TARDIS. He'd end up in like ancient Troy or on a space station or Mars in the future. And that paint would still be there somehow inexplicably. And I was like, it's still not really taking off because it's, it was just, there was something not quite right. I, I, there wasn't, it was an interesting image, but not much more to it. And I thought, how can we make this work better in terms of the syntax? And I thought, well, if this person is linked to the TARDIS, TARDIS is a police box. Should it be like a policeman? And then you go, okay, what's linked? And then that leads to, and obviously, I, I, I don't know that uh, if, if people might not have listened. I, I, I dare say that's the case. So if, if you do have a free moment, obviously not forcing, but if you want to listen to it, I, I won't give away the, the twist. But, um, once that had settled, I I thought it might either be too controversially like, oh no, you've changed the rule book here in Doctor Who, or it might be not changing the rule book enough because a lot of these writers talk about how you should add to it, you should you should do you should take big risks with the stories. Um, but then I got a lovely email from um, uh, the producer of the short trips, then who since uh, moved on. Uh, to to produce a lot more of the other ranges because um, they've now got a new producer on on the short trips. Uh, he got in touch to say, "Oh, we'd like to do yours." And I did get invited down to the Soundhouse, uh, and but unfortunately, I couldn't make it. But I got to listen to it early on. And in terms of in terms of how I felt afterwards when it went out, well, it was lovely because my mum sat with me and and she cried at the end, which is what I wanted because I think. Sad Doctor Who. Obviously, my first episode being Doomsday, where David Tent and Billy Piper are separated. I sort of think uh, sadness is a part of Doctor Who for me, and I like that. Uh, and I like I like that it got to deal with like this idea of people not realizing who they really are, uh, which I, I suppose it's only now I I look at it and think, yeah, there's probably an autistic reading in that story to be derived. And uh, it's quite a personal story. It's not what I do with Doctor Who all the time because I think it does need monsters and it needs lots of jokes and lots of scares. And mine isn't big on jokes and scares, but I, I, I'm, I was really uh, thrilled with the production. I, I do think there are some things I'd change about the story now. There's, there's a joke with Jamie and how there's a drink called a Bloody Mary, and in my mind, he was thinking Jamie was thinking, oh, that that's that sounds a bit horrible considering Mary Queen of Scots it, but it doesn't quite take off and there's some other things I, I, I occasionally think oh we could have done that or but you know I, I like that it's now a, a piece of Doctor Who and I like that it's a tiny piece I, I like I think this goes back to Lillian's um, very astute comments about the ownership thing how it can be as much I like that it's like a little bit on the tapestry of Doctor Who that's chiseled I'd like to do more but um, there's no I think it was nice to go, actually, rather than having this whole empire of Doctor Who, there's this one short story that's got my name on it, and that's just, you know, I'm always going to be uh, incredibly thrilled with that. But Alfie Shaw was lovely. He directed it. Nicholas Briggs, because he was the voice of my remote control Dalek when I was a kid, that was great. I I, I did, the, perhaps my only regret is I did go to a panel uh, in Manchester at a convention where Nicholas Briggs was on stage, and I was in the audience and I, and they were taking questions. And I went, hi, Nick, I wrote an audio you read. And I look back and go, what 
was I thinking? And fortunately, Nick was so lovely about it. Afterwards, he said, oh, hello, it's so nice to meet you. But I just looked back and think, yeah, if I managed to do a second one, which would be great, I'd love to do loads more Doc 2 at Big Finish or in other mediums, but I will never go to a convention and put my hand up and go, hey, I wrote this thing. I, 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 I made a mistake there. <laughs> That's... I don't think so at all. I think that's <laughs> lovely. I mean, because had you had you met him before that point? No, it's it's it's. Well, uh, then it's perfectly. It's a lovely thing to do. <laughs> I, I think that's really sweet. Yeah. No. Why wouldn't you? I, and and you should be proud of it. I think it's you know. I I I I th- I think if my child self <laughs> knew some of the things that I I I was doing, like I um recently recorded an episode of a program with Louise Jameson and I thought oh my Whoa. god if I could if I could like tell a child Lily like you're going to so do a cool. recording of Louise Jameson that's brilliant so, absolutely no yeah. and Re- earlier I, I, I was meant to ask you because I, um, I I did you mentioned Matthew Sweet is that the Dr. Matthew Sweet that you're friends with yes it is yeah that's really cool because I I've uh, Matthew Sweet's like a real hero of mine uh, and and has done a bit of Doctor Who. He he wrote um, uh, a short trip, uh, sorry, a short story with the Master. And I I said to him, like on Twitter, oh, this is I think the the greatest story told with the Master. So that's so cool that you're you're friends with him because he's a, a lovely guy. Well, I will just say I will say Harry. Um, yeah, I mean I totally agree. I think that probably Nicholas Briggs all he ever gets is someone going, oh, I love that you're the voice of the Dalek. Do the Dalek voice. Yeah, yeah that's all he'll ever get. And so for somebody to stand up and say. I actually wrote a short story that you read out. I think he probably thought that's probably pretty cool. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be feel feel bad about that. I listened to that uh, to your story, and it was f- absolutely fabulous. And you you articulate it really well there in that it's just this lovely, small, delicate piece of the of the much bigger picture, but one that feels really really significant as well to the characters within that story that you've written. Um, I thought it was so smart, so clever how you take the concept. I won't spoil it, but take the concept of of the TARDIS, the police box, and the policeman and um, policeman, and how they link up with each other, and how that's navigated through the story, and then to hit that kind of really melancholy, but also quite um, lovely, that really lovely ending of the, the sort of sad but but nice ending it was was just beautifully done, and that the, the the main character, the policeman, was wonderful, and ah, uh, oh, it was just it filled me with joy listening to it. I thought it oh, was such, thank a, you. And such it's, a brilliantly written thing. I thought you captured the the cadences of. Uh, of of Troughton in particular, oh, yeah, it's and it's so lovely to be uh, part of such a lovely lineup because we've had stories from great writers like Ben Ted's, um, and um, the most recent one, The World Tree, uh, has been fantastic. And it's lovely that it's all to remember Paul Sprague. And I, I I I'm so glad it keeps going. And I'm so I'm always excited for who the new winner of the year is because uh, it's it's genuinely it's nice to be able to be to no, oh, I I did that once, and now it's passed on to somebody, somebody else to do it. Um, and you know, I I fully encourage people to write it. The other, the lovely other lovely legacy is that I do get people DM and go, I've written a, a story or I've written a script. Uh, would you look it over me? And it's it's nice that sort of people go, oh, uh, uh, as and I I enjoy reading, and it's not just submissions for the Paul Sprout people send me scripts for their own original projects for audio and, and it's lovely that they they sort of go and and usually usually what i end up saying is oh it's so it's it's marvelous what you do you don't need me but it's it's just nice to be thought of in in that way 
in terms of being able to write over these and it's and it's nice because short stories are quite difficult to crack i i you mentioned robert schumann david earlier who is become a bit of a master of the short trips and i was reading a lot at uni like the works of cd rose and ali smith and i was like oh yeah if that's kind of i think if if anybody listening to this is like oh i'd like i'm a big doctor fan i want to write for big finish and i'd like to enter this opportunity i'd say uh listen you know uh, listen to the audios and read the doctor as much as possible and watch as much but also do go out and get you know short story books and just have a read and you know you know have a look at how people in 5000 words can just set up a scenario and it's and it's nice it, that's where it's nice where doctor can be a tonal window to lots of other things and it doesn't have to be quite so insular it can lead to lots of other things mm, i think i think that's really important is like and and the terms of the aesthetics of doctor who and there's a sensibility of doctor who that really comes from that fandom and that level of engagement and that kind of I mean, what we've been talking about in terms of like hyperfixation and attachment to it is that it is something that means a lot to people. And I think that in in your writing and 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 in other, you can always tell when a writer really loves this this, this landscape. You know, it it comes through because you feel it's it's part it's part of your way of sort of seeing. And I think that the amount of autism and neurodivergence that's within that and it's surely coming through in the way that it's it's um it's it's being created and i think that's something that maybe 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 later down the line we'll have more conversations around this because i think it is really really fascinating but it's so lovely to hear you talking about like the sort of the progression towards that level that kind of writing um and to reiterate that is why christian and Stephen Moffat could not do it because they don't feel it in the way that I think some other people do. I think if you watch Moffat talking about Doctor Who, especially Classic Who, he doesn't, he does, no, he doesn't feel it, I think. I don't think, I think he lacks something of the passion. I think, I think his love of it is very different. And I think it is perhaps that more minutiae obsessed hermeticism, which has perhaps, which has perhaps plagued who. And hopefully with, Russell T Davies coming back, we will have something which is more open, more friendly, just better. Just better. Yeah, <laughs> just better. He's, he's always been quite open with with fans, hasn't he? Russell T Davies in all of his work. He's and done, I think. such a great writer. I mean, to think of you know, I sort of slightly mourn the show that he was he could have written had he not come back because he was on such a you know succession rate with a very English scandal and years and years and it's a sin which is like one of the top five dramas of, of the 21st century and the stuff before like cucumber uh and the second coming which is queer as folk i i i, I am sometimes tempted to you know you, there are points where you watch these and goes god it's even better than his doctor who and his doctor who's great um but it's lovely that he's coming back and with shooty in the lead role is is incredible. He's a fabulous actor. I think it's a brilliant choice. It's very clever choice. Yeah, but just very not not totally unexpected. And yet, it's one of those where you go, you go, I would never have thought of that, but it makes complete sense. And now I'm wondering why I never thought of that. So it, I think it's going to be, it's going to be really good, really fantastic, exciting time for Doctor Who. Definitely. Well, 
let's say then on that note that I think uh, we Thanks should probably for bring bearing it to with us, listeners. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I'm sure this is going to be a particularly long. It's episode, got to be quite a long episode, but that's fine. You know, uh, that, that, that I always anticipated it was going to be because we will all have so much to say about who, and um, it's such a big topic, a big area. And I'm really glad that we got into the meat of that discussion around fandom, actually, because I think that was really important for us to talk about that. Um, and it's interesting. And I guess if there are any listeners out there who have any thoughts on any of that, you know, what are your experiences of Doctor Who fandom in, in, in relation to autism or neurodiversity and, uh, you know, positive and negative? Let us know. We'd be interested in reading that stuff. Um, okay. But anyway, I'm going to actually now properly bring it to a close. So thank you, everybody. Um, thank you, Lillian. And thank you, Ethan, as ever. You're always wonderful and bring so much interesting uh, thoughts to the to discussion. But a very special thank you to Harry uh, for joining us. Uh, it was absolutely wonderful to have you. And thank you for sharing with us your story and your, you know, and your uh, sort of the history of how that all came together. Uh, we will. I've made a note of um, putting a link to the British Heart Foundation for the... Oh, for the, thank you so much. But if That's... you can get so much the details i'll send you yes i shall get onto that now that'll be my next job great and hopefully that will be in the show notes dear listeners so please uh, do click on that and contribute if you can um and also harry's the link to harry's story will be there which is free to download from the big finish um website so you should be able to listen to it and i heartily recommend it as somebody who is very much into short stories and short story writing i think it's a if you're not big on audio that there's also i think a download for the, the script ironically but you might uh, you might be like, oh, I'd I'd rather go watch the Tenth Planet, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll just watch the Tenth Planet. I'll just watch all of Doctor Who. It's fine. Um, right. Uh, thank you. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I will bring it to a close there, and uh, hopefully, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time with a new episode. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary University of London. Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in.